Today we have another episode in our series, True Crimes, Bible Edition. In our previous episodes, we've investigated a variety of crimes and criminals. The crimes that they committed were similar, mostly murders, but the reaction of the Lord God wasn't always the same. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. When Cain murdered his brother Abel, the Lord God punished Cain and his descendants because Cain did not love the Lord. When Moses killed the Egyptian taskmaster, he did it thinking that he was called by the Lord to do it, namely to rescue the people of Israel from the Egyptians. Uh, True, but Moses acted 40 years too early according to the Lord's timetable. Then there was King David, who committed the crimes of adultery and murder. The Lord was greatly displeased with his chosen king. But he used the prophet Nathan to lead David to repentance. David did repent, but his crimes had major consequences for himself and for his family for decades to come. And then in our last episode, we met Ehud, a judge, a deliverer. Ehud assassinated the king of Moab, who had been oppressing the people of Israel for 18 years. Although assassination was a crime punishable by death, in this case the Lord sanctioned Ehud's assassination of King Eglon because it was the Lord's way of rescuing his people. Similar crimes, different responses from the Lord, and quite a few takeaways for you and me. In our last episode, I also explained that during the period of the judges, Israel went through seven cycles of rest rebellion, rule by another nation, and rescue by one of the judges. Now, during Ehud's cycle, there was another judge who rescued Israel. He rescued Israel from the Philistines, who lived southwest of Israel. Now, there isn't much to say about this judge because the Bible covers his life in two sentences. His name was Shamgar. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. By the way, do you know what an ox goad is? Even if you've never heard of it before, it's pretty easy to guess what it was and what it was used for. It's essentially the same as a cattle prod. In Old Testament times, an ox goad was a wooden pole or stick about eight feet long. On one end, it came to a point or had an iron spike attached to it. It was used to, let's say, encourage the oxen to keep pulling the cart or the plow. Sometimes the oxen rebelled by kicking back against the goad. Not a smart decision. Kicking a goad caused pain for the animal. And if you don't believe me, go kick a spike or a nail that is sticking out of a piece of wood. And let me know how that turns out for you. 
The word ox goat is only used once in the Bible. But just the word goad is used two other times. One is in Ecclesiastes, where the goad refers to the Word of God and its effect upon people's hearts, prodding our conscience, pointing us to repentance, and gently pushing us to follow God's will for our lives. The other time it occurs is in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 26. The Apostle Paul is on trial before King Agrippa. And during the trial, Paul retells the story of his conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul, at that time called Saul, was heading to Damascus to persecute, imprison, and put Christians to death. This is what he told King Agrippa. About noon, O king, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul was resisting the gospel of Jesus and was persecuting those who followed him. Jesus told Saul that it was futile for him to resist the power of the gospel and that he would end up hurting himself. On that day, Saul slash Paul, stopped kicking against the goads. Please forgive this digression, but I thought it was worthwhile to see this little Bible thread in the word goad. An ox goad was typically used as a physical prod in agriculture. Shamgar used it as a physical weapon in war. But Solomon in Ecclesiastes and Jesus' own words to Saul Describe how the Lord and his word serve as a spiritual prod or goad for you and me. And that's a good thing. In our episode today, we're going to investigate a crime that took place in Israel during the time of Judge Deborah. Not Judge Judy, Judge Deborah. Deborah was not only a judge in Israel, but she was also a prophet. Judges chapter 4 begins with the pattern that I mentioned earlier. Once again, it was repeated. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they, the people, cried to the Lord for help. Well, we've got a bunch of names and places to sort out here. Let's start with the city of Hazor. Hazor was a strategically located city about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was a mountainous region on a major trade route in ancient times. We first hear about Hazor during the time of Joshua, as he was leading Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. The book of Joshua, chapter 11, tells us that Joshua won a great battle at Hazor against the king named Jabin. Jabin led an alliance of Canaanite cities. Already at the time of Joshua, King Jabin had chariots in his army. And with this victory over Jabin, Joshua burned the city to the ground. The Canaanite people, however, would rebuild the city. 
and at the time of Deborah, which was a century and a half later, another king named Jabin ruled the city and the surrounding area. Two other details about Hazar are worth mentioning. During the reign of King Solomon, he had the city of Hazor fortified to defend the northern border from any threats from Syria and Assyria. When the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser invaded the land of Israel 200 years after Solomon lived, Hazor was one of the first cities captured. Its residents were deported into Assyria. The other detail about Hazor is a contemporary one. Today, Hazor is the largest archaeological site in all of Israel. So, Jabin was the king of Hazor. Sisera was his general. And we're told that Sisera lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Now, this probably wasn't the name of a city or town. The phrase means metal forge of the foreign nations. It was likely the name of Sisera's military base where he had a weapons factory that manufactured iron chariots. Chariots were the tanks of the ancient world. Each chariot had two wheels and was pulled by a horse. They could maneuver easily and tear through a battle line of soldiers on foot. Sisera had 900 of these iron chariots at his disposal. And it was to this king that the Lord sold the people of Israel because they once again had done evil in the eyes of the Lord. We're not told specifically what the evil was that Israel did in the eyes of the Lord in chapter 4, simply that they once again did evil. We do get a sense, however, of what this evil was in the next chapter, where Deborah recounted Israel's recent history. She said, Warrior life in Israel ceased, ceased until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. When they chose new gods, war came to the city gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Now this suggests that the people had lost their will to fight for the Lord's land, and instead chose to worship the gods of the Canaanite people. And remember from our last episode, the worship of Baal and Asherah involved sexual activity with the temple prostitutes. The attitude in Israel at this time could be summed up with the 1960s Vietnam-era phrase, make love, not war. As a result of this evil, the Lord allowed Jabin's army, under the command of Sisera, to oppress the people of Israel, and it was a cruel oppression. The Hebrew word has the meaning of violence. This oppression lasted for two decades, during which time the people once again cried out to the Lord for deliverance. Let's talk a little bit about Deborah. Here is what Judges chapter 4 says about her. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. In these two sentences, there is once again a lot to unpack. First, the name Deborah in Hebrew. It's the name for a bee, like a, like a honeybee. Deborah was married to a man named Lapidoth. Deborah was also a prophetess, 
Both male and female prophets in the Old Testament were mouthpieces of the Lord. They spoke the word of the Lord. Unlike a warrior judge like Ehud, Deborah was also a judge like we think of a judge. She held court publicly under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. Ramah and Bethel were about five miles apart in the hill country near the border of the tribes of Benjamin and Ephraim. Now, it would be reasonable to conclude that the palm of Deborah was named after Deborah the prophetess and judge. But it's also possible that this was a different Deborah, a woman who lived at the time of Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah had a nurse named Deborah, and she died, and she was buried under an oak tree just south of Bethel. So this is the same area where Deborah is holding court. Some Bible scholars wonder if this oak tree under which Nurse Deborah was buried and the palm of Deborah are one and the same. Interesting possibility, but we just don't know for sure. Although Deborah is the only female judge mentioned in the Old Testament, she was not the only female prophet. There were other female prophets in both the Old and New Testament. There was Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. She was a prophetess. Then there was an unnamed wife of the prophet Isaiah. She also is called a prophetess. And there's Huldah, who delivered God's message of judgment to the faithful King Josiah. Her message was simply, Judah's days are numbered. Then if we jump to the New Testament, we meet the prophetess Anna at the Jerusalem temple. When Jesus was brought there, on his, when he was eight days old. In the book of Acts, we learn that the evangelist Philip had four daughters who were prophets. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Christians living in Corinth, mentioned that some women there had the gift of prophecy. The Bible also tells us about two different women who were false prophets. One whose name was Noadiah prophesied against Nehemiah as he was trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Finally, in Revelation 2, we learn about a false prophetess by the name of Jezebel of Thyatira. Deborah may be one of the more familiar female prophets, but certainly not the only one. From her court under the palm of Deborah, Deborah sent for Barak. Barak was a mighty warrior and commander of the army. The name Barak means lightning. When Barak arrived, Deborah told him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go and take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give them into your hands. Deborah delivered the Lord's message that told Barak that he would be able to defeat Sisera's army, even with his 900 chariots, because the Lord was with Barak in Israel. The Lord simply promised victory. But Barak hesitated. Maybe he was thinking, Sisera has 900 iron chariots that are deadly. We have zero zilch, nada. How could we ever possibly defeat them? I get it. And maybe I'd probably hesitate too. What about you? 
Barak hesitated, revealing a lack of faith and trust in the promises of God. Barak said to Deborah, If you go with me, I will go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. So Deborah agreed to go. But because of Barak's lack of faith in God, she told him that the credit for the victory would not go to him, but to a woman. Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, and there assembled a 10,000-strong army. Now, if you listen or read Judges chapter 4, what we're told next seems a bit irrelevant to the storyline. Just listen to this. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'anaim, near Kadesh. So, what does Hebrew have to do with any of this? And who is he? Hang on. We'll find out in just a bit. Barak and his men marched up Mount Tabor. When Sisera learned that Barak was on Mount Tabor, he gathered his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him and headed to the Kishon River, which was just a trickle of a stream during the dry season. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Now what does that mean, that the Lord has gone ahead of you? Hang on, we'll get to that too. Long story short, Barak comes down the mountain with his 10,000 soldiers and routs Sisera and his 900 chariots. You know, it seems like we're missing some details. And we are. The details of this battle are in the next chapter, included in what's known as the Song of Deborah. That phrase, the Lord has gone ahead of you, referred to something only the Lord could do. Verse 4 of the Song of Deborah says this, The earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down waters. And verse 21, The river Kishon swept them away, the age-old river, the river Kishon. The Lord had sent a massive rainstorm. The ground turned to mud, bogging down Sisera's chariots. What had been a trickling stream had suddenly become a roaring river, sweeping away many of Sisera's soldiers. Then Barak and his men pursued Sisera's army, and not a one of Israel's enemies survived, except for Sisera. Sisera got off his chariot that was stuck in the mud and fled to the tent of Ya'el. In English, we would say Ja'el. By the way, did you know that there is no J sound in the ancient Hebrew language? Anyway, Ja'el was the wife of Heber the Kenite. Remember that reference that just seemed to be inserted into the story? Well, now we know. But there's more. Sisera fled to the tent of Ja'el and Heber is because they were, had friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. There was some kind of peace treaty between Jabin and the Kenites, and Sisera must have known it. With such a peace treaty came a highly respected code of hospitality, which was practiced all across the Middle East. When Jael went out to meet Sisera and invited him into her tent, 
She was guaranteeing Sisera's health and safety. So Jael invited the exhausted Sisera into her tent, had him lie down on a mat, covered him with a blanket or a rug, and when he asked for a drink of water, Jael instead gave him warm milk to drink. After he fell asleep, Jael ignored the code of hospitality between King Jabin and her husband Heber. She picked up a stent take and hammer and drove the stake through Sisera's temples and into the ground. Now, Barak was in pursuit of Sisera. When he came near Jael's tent, she went out of her tent and told Barak that she could show him the man he was looking for. And she did. Victory was secured on this day by Jael, not Barak. Now, this was the first of more battles to come against King Jabin, but eventually Israel was victorious and there was peace, meaning no war, for the next 40 years. So, was what Jael did to Sisera a crime of murder? It certainly wasn't self-defense. And Jael was a civilian, not a soldier, so this can't be considered a battlefield death. And what Jael did went against everything she knew about practicing hospitality with an ally. So what do you think? In our last episode, we talked about different perspectives. What Jael did was a crime of murder from King Jabin's perspective. He lost the commander of his army. And what Jael did was a crime of murder from the perspective of Sisera's mother. At the end of the Song of Deborah, there is a caricature of Sisera's mother. Listen how she is described. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariot delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a girl or two for each man, colorful garments as plunder for Sisera, colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck? All this is plunder. From the perspective of the rulers and the people of Hazor, this was murder. But not from the Lord's perspective. King Jabin and the people of Hazor were enemies of God's people. The Lord, through Deborah, indicated the glory of defeating Sisera and his army, going to a woman. So between the Lord sending the downpour of rain to make 900 iron chariots useless to Jael's tent-pegging of Sisera's head, this was the Lord's plan to rescue his people from their enemies. So is there anything we can learn from the story of Deborah, Barak, and Jael? I think so. The Lord called Deborah to serve as Israel's only female judge and to be his mouthpiece as a prophetess. What stands out for me is that Deborah was a great encourager to Barak as she demonstrated her faith in the words and promises of the Lord. She's a woman to emulate. Then there's Barak, who hesitated, who initially lacked faith in the words and promises of the Lord. Yet in the end, his weakness turned into strength. 
It took great courage to come charging down Mount Tabor to face 900 iron chariots. And did you know that Barak is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11? Which is known not as the Hall of Fame, but the Hall of Faith. Barak stands with the great people of faith. Probably the final takeaway is that those who do not remain faithful to the Lord God lose out on his blessing. It is only through repentance that we can enjoy all that the Lord wants to give us. This was a truth that Old Testament Israel struggled to learn throughout its history. You know, we can do better. I think the last stanza in the Song of Deborah makes the contrast between the Lord's enemies and those faithful to him crystal clear. So Deborah sang these words, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Let me say that again. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but may they who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. True Crimes, Bible Edition. In our next episode, we'll investigate what I think is one of the most heinous crimes in the Bible. It involved a religious leader, an old man, and two women. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. And let me tell you about a new book I wrote for Time of Grace. It's called More Tough Questions and How the Bible Answers Them. Watch for it. It'll be available July 3rd, 2022 on our website at timeofgrace.org. Thanks for listening and God bless.